Welcome to another episode of Million Dollar Stories, where we get to interview authors from all over the world. Uh, I am extremely excited about this book uh, interview, simply because this book um, really did change me a little bit when I first picked it up uh, in school. I went to Duquesne University. If anybody uh, has been following me for a long time, I talk a little bit about Duquesne University. And uh, one of the books that was worth a damn in school was a book by a guy named Jim Collins. Built for wait is what is it? It's uh Jim Collins built for good greatness. Great. Built to good, gr- yeah. Great. yeah. Good to great. Good to great. That's the one. And uh I that's whenever I realized, like, okay, there's a couple things that I need to adopt if I'm going to become an entrepreneur. And then this book comes out called Built to Last, and it's by Jim Collins and our guest today, Jerry Porras. Thank you so much for being here, man. Uh, happy to be here. By by the way, Built to Last came out before Good to Great. Oh, it was? I yeah. didn't know that. Okay. Wow. Yeah. I read Built to Last not too long ago. Okay. So that makes yeah. sense then. All right. Yeah. In fact, uh, Jim was saying when he was talking to me about it, that it turned out that Good to Great is a prequel to Built to Last, although <laughs> Built to Last came out first. <laughs> yeah. To me, uh, the, whenever I see that, I, I, it made so much sense um, intuitively, right? You know, Good to Great and then Built to Last. Built to Last, you're thinking, okay, let me build a company that's scalable and sellable. Um, and the reason why I'm even bringing this up is one of my clients wrote a book called Built to Grow, and I always equated it to this one, man. So yeah, Built to Last, guys, it's on Amazon, two 2,380 reviews, and it's successful habits of visionary companies. And they call this good to great book two. That's why I saw that on Amazon. I'm like, oh, okay. Jerry, why did you write this? Well, uh, Jim and I had been talking about uh, visionary leadership. Uh, He he was at the business school at Stanford at the time, and uh, we engaged each other in a variety of conversations and we were talking about uh, visionary leadership and saying well what is it what is that and uh you know how can we do some research about it that would really be useful to helping uh, leaders and managers of organizations uh, be be better than they are so as we probed into it we really found out it was sort of a bottomless pit there wasn't really a, a useful way to think about visionary leadership uh, the word vision was pretty confusing uh, the word chariz- charismatic was often attached to visionary. And when you look at charismatic and say, well, can you teach someone to be charismatic or something they're born with? So it was really kind of a morass. But as we did that probing, we started to ask ourselves the question, uh, well, uh, you know, there's this assumption that visionary leaders, charismatic visionary leaders build great organizations. Uh, is that true? So we started looking at organizations that we thought were pretty good ones. And we found out that they didn't have that charismatic visionary leader currently. And they we looked back in their history, like at 3M, we looked back in their history and nothing. You know, there wasn't any leader that we could classify as, you know, walk on water, uh, glow in the dark, charismatic visionary leader. So we said, oh, the, the focus is on is on the wrong thing. We need to be focusing on the company. Mm-hmm. And let's focus on the company. And so the reason we we did that is because we I had been doing research on organizational change and how do you change organizations to make them more effective, uh, more successful, and also uh, better places for people to work in. That that kind of been my career research. But one of the things that had been missing in that is 
Well, when you want to change an organization, what does that organization look like if you're successful? You know, what's the elephant look like? And so I didn't have a really clear idea of that, or kind of an overall pretty complete conceptualization of what that might be like. And so that had kind of been driving me underneath all of this other stuff. Uh, so when we start focusing on organizations, they said, ah, that's what we want to do. We want to find out what are these great organizations like and uh, how are they different from other organizations who may have survived just as long, uh, but who just don't seem to have that level of, of enduring greatness that we were looking for. So that's that's what began the research and and the focus on the company rather than on the individual. Hmm. So there's a phrase out there in my community. I've always heard big, hairy, audacious goals, and they call them BHAGs. I believe we can trace it back to your book. Is that right? Is that where it began? Yeah, and that's correct. That's correct. And that's an argument that Jim and I had about (laughs) what we're going to call these types of goals. Uh, uh, You know, I'm an academic. And and uh, and and Jim is more of a marketer type kind of guy. He he he'd spent most of his time out in the world, and he was he was teaching a course on entrepreneurism at the business school. And so um, he'd kind of been out in touch with what's going on and what grabs people. And so I was saying, well, let's call them, you know, uh, stretching goals or something like that. And he said, no, let's call them big, hairy, audacious goals. And that made me uncomfortable because, <laughs> you know, those, those words and they're kind of extreme and you're academic, you're kind of toned down and, and precise in your in your verbiage. But I said, OK, let's call it that. And uh, and that, ha- that happens to be a term that that people just really have come away with. And it's just stuck in a lot of different places. Wow. So you actually fought them on it, it sounds like. Huh? You didn't yes. want it. Ah, that's it is so trendy amongst entrepreneurs in my community. It's amazing. Yes. I'm glad he won. <laughs> <laughs> uh another thing I remember taking away from this book is cult-like features, right? If everybody's striving for culture, the root word for culture is a cult. And if I look at some of the great companies like Apple out there or even Tesla, in my opinion, it's a cult. And uh, and maybe that's what is required. So what would you say whenever you started to look at some of these companies, it's incredibly important but difficult to create a culture that is cult-like? Yeah, well, when, when we started the research, we didn't have a lot of clear ideas about what we were going to find and what, what these companies look like. Uh, let me back up and say a little bit about the research, if you don't mind, because I think people need to understand the roots of how this information got generated uh, so that they can feel like, yeah, I'm confident that these ideas uh, really are derived from from a world that's out there rather than from the minds of the two authors, which so often happens in books that, you know, an author gets an idea and uses it and develops it and then puts puts it into a book and everybody thinks it's generalizable to everything else. But very often it isn't. And so we were concerned about that generalizability that, you know, that it'd be applicable to all types of organizations. So we uh, we tried not to have too many preconceived notions about what we were going to find. Uh, so in doing in doing that, the, the research, the research really wanted to focus on, on existing companies that were out there. And we wanted to study them and we wanted to compare them to other companies that weren't as fantastic as these companies were. So the first challenge was how do you how do you select a company? You know, is it Jim and I sitting there and our own biases entering in and we're saying, hey, this company's great, that company's great. So we said, no, no, we can't do that if we really want to be uh, rigorous about about this. We have to survey CEOs. 
So we sent out, we uh, created a, 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 a carefully selected sample uh, of corporate leaders throughout the, throughout the country because we were focusing on U.S. companies. And, and we sent them out a very short survey. It was, it was basically a postcard. And the postcard said, uh, look, we're interested in, in understanding which companies you think are the most visionary, using whatever definition of visionary you've got. Here, here's here's a, a five list five companies that you think are that fit that category in your mind. And so out of that uh, is how we drew the sample of these of these 18 companies to study. Hmm. Uh, now, we start out with 20, but we threw two of them out, Apple and Compaq, because this was in 1990 that we were collecting the data. And they both weren't that the, strong, they, right? Apple were, was not a boomer at that point. Yeah. They were babies. They were babies. You know, Apple was 12 years old and Compaq was, I think, 10 years old. So, so uh, we said, look, when we looked at all the rest of them, this was kind of an aha. We looked at all the rest of them. All the rest of them, the youngest ones were founded in, in the 1950s. So they were, they were almost 50 years old. And the average founding date was like 1897. They went back all the way back to 1812. So we said, these are babies. They, they, you know, we started to understand that what made a great company was a company who had endured all sorts of different environments, different challenges in the world that they had to face. And if you're really young, you haven't endured a world war. You haven't endured a depression. Uh, you, you, you haven't endured a, like a technological revolution, the original one. I think we got one now. Another one going on now. But all yeah. these things that, that have happened in the last 100 plus years, these young companies haven't endured that. So we said we can't really use them because they don't fit the profile of the others. So we tossed them out. And that's how we wound up with 18. And then we started to say, okay. Well, how do we study these 18? Do we go into them right now and just talk to them? Well, if we did that, we'd be getting current information. You know, what's going on now or the last five years or so. And we don't know how enduring that current information is. We're really interested in enduring ideas. So we said the only way we can really get a hold of these guys is to study them from the founding date forward. Hmm. So, so we went back and we collected information uh, on these companies, we we contacted them and they asked them to give us access to their archives and almost all of them said yes. So we went into their archives and we dug out information and books that were written, everything we could find. And that's the source of the information about these visionary companies. Now, because we didn't want to study them just in abstract, you know, we find, hey, all great visionary companies have terrific buildings. Well, is is that really a discriminating factor in, in making you enduringly great? Well, the answer is no, obviously. So we said we got to compare them to another set of companies that have been just around around just as long, were competing in the same marketplace, and were founded in roughly the same time period. So it's like we got two horses starting the race at the same time. It turns out that 100 years later, on average, the visionary horse is, is ahead of this comparison horse. What is it about the visionary horse that made them led them to be to, to get ahead. And so we had this comparison. So the, the visionary companies had these characteristics, the comparison companies did not. And one of them was these cult-like cultures that were that we're calling. So cult-like cultures are are very, very strong cultures that exist primarily because there's a factor that that is that precedes them that these companies really want to maintain. And that is they want to maintain a core ideology. And what a core ideology is, is what's your purpose? And that means, why do you exist? Mm -hmm. And if your answer is we exist to make a lot of money, that doesn't, that doesn't pan out with, the, with our, our findings. 
The comparison companies existed primarily to make a lot of money. So you can survive a long time by just focusing on that. But to be really be great over a long period of time, like these visionary companies were, they have to focus on something deeper than making a lot of money. So they have to have a purpose and they have to have some core values. We found that these companies had a small number between three and five core values that they followed through almost through their entire history. From their founding day forward, if it wasn't the founder, it was an early transformational leader, they'd introduce these values into the company and they have guided the company for all of its history. That doesn't mean that they don't often, they don't sometimes stray from these values, but these values are there to kind of guide the company. So those two things, the core ideology that make up the core ideology, the purpose and the core values are really the basis for the culture. Mm. Because a culture is essentially rooted in values. The culture derives from values. And so these folks wanted to have a set of, had a culture that really supported these core values because they thought that they were important and that's how they wanted to operate their companies. So these, these cultures, in order to support those values and serve that purpose, had to be really tight. And that's what we found is that they had really tight cultures and so not everybody fits. So you might go to work for one of the one of the visionary companies, IBM, and you go in there and and you know you can produce your 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 experience in something. You got a lot of a lot of uh, uh, education in, in a particular area. You've performed really well at other companies, and so you look like a great hire. And most companies hire based on that. But then you go into IBM, and you just don't fit the the way IBM operates. Mm-hmm. You don't fit the way they see the world. You don't fit their core values. You don't fit what they're trying to accomplish. And this is true for all the visionary companies. You go to work for Disney. Uh, you go to work for Citibank. I mean, it's they all have these cultures. Some are tighter than others, but they're all pretty tight, and they were tighter than the comparison companies. So these cultures, then, are designed to really kind of get everybody on the same page around two very fundamental things. Why are we here, and how do we want to behave? That's it. You get those right. You're uh, you're ahead of the pack. Uh, I watched a speech from Trump, and I think it was in 2008, 2007, somewhere in there at a business conference. And he talked about one of his mentors in the 80s or 90s. And uh, I forget the guy's name, but he was a magnet. I mean, he was an absolute machine in the real estate space. And uh, years after he retired, he tried to come back and uh, he went bankrupt because of it. And in an interview that he had with that, his mentor said, well, why did you struggle? I mean, when you came back, you had all the same skill sets and everything. And he never forgot what he told him. He said it was momentum. He lost momentum and he didn't know how to get it back. So when I see companies out there who are great and then they start to struggle, it's almost like they lost their momentum. I'm looking at Disney right now, $194 billion. Bob Iger walks away and then comes back afterwards after a little bit of a layoff and it just doesn't seem like the magic is there do these great companies lose their magic based off of what you just said they lose their purpose or core values or simply because individuals just don't have the faith in their leadership like they once did what do you think it is uh, i, I th- well i think it's probably a little bit of both but uh in terms of the ideas that that we work with uh is is that i think that they start to drift away from what their purpose is or what their core values are and and as they drift away, uh, it's hard it's hard to kind of get people back on track because yeah. they're following the way the 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 organization the company is evolving, 
and you get new people come in and they only see that version, that newer version, if you will. And so, and so the company starts to drift. And so bringing it back to where it was and kind of focused again on its purpose and its core values uh, is not, uh, is not an easy thing. And one could translate that into momentum. Mm-hmm. We were going like crazy and now it's drifted over here and I come back in and I'm finding that it's over here. It's not kind of in the path that I had created and it's awfully difficult to get it back on that path. And obviously he couldn't. Uh, but we have an example actually of Ford uh, over the years. Ford started out and, um, you know, Ford was saying, Henry Ford was saying, you know, what we're about is is we want to we want to uh, build build a car for the masses. We want to democratize the automobile. And we want to make it at quality and price that 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 everybody can afford. And he was selling it at a lower price than anybody else. In addition, he was paying his employees five bucks an hour yeah. I mean, or a day, I should the say. First one to do it, right? The first one exactly. to have a living wage. I think 40 hours a week. I think he's the one that created that. Exactly. And those folks, uh, those folks were in the industry were criticizing him for it. But he built this notion, he built this company that the idea is that we're accomplishing something. We're 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 creating this car which will make uh, the masses out in the world. Uh, mobile and be able to to go out and do things that they weren't able to do because they can get in a car now and do it. And so they were really committed to that. And so over time, they started, you know, he dies. The the values and all that are still there. Uh, but over time, it starts drifting away and the leaders start drifting away from it. And so and so you get back, you get into the into the 1960s or so, uh, and they had drifted away fairly far. Mm hmm. And and so they had a CEO come in, uh, Don Peterson, I think was his name. And he uh, he came in and he said, hey, we got to get back to basics. And what that meant is let's get back to what we're really about. Let's get back to our basic value system. And he started instituting all sorts of processes and programs and structures and systems, et cetera, in in Ford to get back on track. And by golly, they did get back on track. And they started being as successful as they had been in their in their early years. So it's hard to do. It's not easy. And that's one reason that the visionary companies have tended to promote their CEOs from within mm. instead of bringing them from outside. Um, to keep that core value intact, right? Yeah. And, and that it's that that it's it's not just up here in your in your brain, but it's in your gut. That that's that that's who you that that's how you see the world fundamentally, and the people who who come to a company and rise up to the top, um, have that in there because the cultures are really tight, you know, and the values are really clear, and the purpose is really clear, and so they've lasted that long. They get promoted. They've got that in their guts. It's who they. It's part of who they are. You bring in an outsider to be CEO, uh, you don't know, Hewlett Packard. Hewlett Packard. Hewlett Packard ran that company for I don't know forty years, and then they both retired, and they appointed someone from from within, and he ran that company for about another ten years, and he retires, and they promoted someone else from within, and he ran that company for five or six years, and then all of a sudden, uh, Hewlett Packard were, had been on the board, but they they died, and so all of a sudden. Uh, we're faced with this with this new economy. You know, the internet starts coming out. 
And so it's a new economy. We need to have new expertise, et cetera. And the board looks at HP and says, well, we've just got all this old leadership that's just been around all the time. And um, they're not performing as well as we want them to. So we got to get a new CEO. But not somebody from within. We got to get somebody from without that will shake the company up and and uh, you know and and bring us into the new economy. So they fired the CEO, who, by the way, when you look at his five-year performance before before he was fired, and you compare him to Jack Welch's five-year performance at that same period, the Hewlett Packard guy outperformed Jack Welch. <laughs> One so, of the greats of all time, of course. Yeah, yeah. And so so people, I mean, if you're looking at objectively, you're saying, what the heck are you doing? But they brought in Carly Fiorina from the outside. Now, Carly Fiorina was basically a market per, marketing person. And she comes in, and the way she looks at Hewlett-Packard is from a marketing perspective, not from the basic perspective of why Hewlett-Packard exists, Ooh. which, by the way, is to make technical contributions. That's where they were, they were about make technical contributions and the products that they developed and all that all were designed to make special technical contributions. And if they couldn't make a technical contribution, they would abandon the product. So that was a tight part of their culture and not marketing. So she comes in from the outside. I'm sure she said all the right things about the Hewlett Packard way and, and you know what Hewlett Packard is all about. And so the board was very happy with her. And she had been very successful at, at her other company. And, uh, and so she comes in and she doesn't have the Hewlett Packard way in her guts. So what does she do? She looks at the world and she says, hey, what we're doing is we're missing uh, these product lines. If you look at all the product lines that HP has, we're missing uh, computers of this size or computers that focus on that or mainframes that do this or that. So we've got to fill those gaps. So how are you going to fill those gaps? Well, she, she goes and buys deck. She buys deck and she claims that she's going to integrate the cultures together within a small amount of time. I can't remember what she said, but it was a bizarre amount of time, like three or four months. She's going to integrate the cultures of these two companies. No can't way. Do can't do it. No way. And, and, and Compaq had been a company that had been buying other companies uh, over time. And that's how it became the size it became. They bought deck, for example, um, and uh, and over time and so they had they never really, really integrated those companies into the compact culture i talked to a guy from compact who is now with hp and i said well what's it like being being uh, at hp well he said we're still compact guys and i said oh is that right how come he says well that's just the way we are but you ought to talk to the deck guys i said what do you mean the deck guys he said well we bought them you know eight years ago <laughs> and they just still identify themselves as the deck guys two worlds that's not going to get you anywhere. Exactly, exactly. So, so that that promotion from within is really a powerful way of staying on on online. You know, maintaining the momentum. So, so the, the power of thinking about companies in this way is that they're not dependent on on one individual human being. They're they're dependent on the system you've created. Oh. That's the organization. And the organization develops the human beings inside to keep it going in the directions that it's wanted to go for, you know, 100 years or so. So, that, so that's that's why it's, why it's critical. And that's how you maintain the momentum. You bring in an outsider. You, you, you run a risk. Sometimes the outsider fits really well. 
but very often they don't. Give me chills thinking about this because, uh, you know, I'm looking at my organization and I realized I was trying to build everything on me and it wasn't, it wasn't, uh, transcending me into the organization. And once I fixed that, I noticed a, a major propulsion within the company. And, uh, you're right. You got to keep that as much as possible. Uh, you make me think of even with Apple, Steve jobs made the fatal mistake of hiring. I believe the CEO of Pepsi, right? And he had that great quote. You want to sell sugar water for the rest of your life, or you want to change the world. And yeah. he brought him on, but he didn't have the right core value. He didn't have the right purpose in the gut. And the gut is always faster than the mind. And That's you bring right. up Ford. I love how you bring that up because what? They were struggling in the 60s. I have a 1969 Mustang simply because of these new transformational ideas that they implemented. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Really goes back to Lee Iacocca, right? They brought him in. Let's go after teenagers. And that shifted the branding, the marketing. And okay, let's let's serve these individuals at a certain level, low cost in if, uh, and inexpensive, but also does a really nice job. So really good points there. Um, you also have, and I just want to touch on this, in, as I, I wrote this down, the visionary companies that do well, they're built on ideology, not products or technology. Products and technology doesn't matter. They're, they're always going to change. They're always going to get upgraded. AIs coming into play. But right. the ideology, what you stand for, who who are the enemies, who are your allies, that shouldn't change. Is that right? That's exactly right. And, and, and as I said, ideology has the two components, the purpose and the core values. But in this context that we're talking about now that you bring up, the purpose is really the driving idea here. That it's the purpose that's the star that's out in the distance that you never achieve fully. You're, you're, you're Walt Disney Company, and your purpose is what? Uh, my purpose is to create an, a, a world of imagination for, for, for kids to feel like kids for the rest of their life. That's my purpose. Yeah. And, 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 and why do you want to do that? Because you want to make them happy. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Okay. Simple. That's a simple purpose. Make people happy. You go to Disneyland. What's the sign that's up on the, on the, above the entryway? I've never happy been there. I don't know. Earth. Oh, what is his place on earth? Okay, have you? Okay, gotcha. So, so they're, what they're all about is making people happy. Okay, so, so what purpose did is it helped Disney stay on a track pretty, pretty well, not completely perfectly, for over you know the it's probably been a hundred years now that that eight, that uh, Disney was founded. So they start out and they're they're uh, they're making cartoons for kids. So, so we're making people happy. In this case, it was the kids. And so then they evolve, and then they make full-length cartoons that adults start to like. For, uh, uh, you know, just, just a whole story instead of just a cartoon, and adults start to like that. Mm -hmm. And then still making people happy. Then they, then they evolve into movies with people in them. Still the same thing, making people happy. And then they make this big jump to creating Disneyland Park. Now that's a big jump from making movies to creating Disneyland Park, which in itself didn't ever didn't really exist. That idea, that concept of what they did, didn't really exist. So, that, but they built it, and why? It made people happy in yep. a different way. So the, the the idea here is that over a long term, as the world changes on you, because it's going to change, you can get into new products. Some of them you can sustain. Your old ones you can sustain, as Disney has. But you can get into new products that will fit the new environment. However, they have to fit the purpose. 
So Disney, over time, they bought ABC Television and ESPN Sports, made people happy. They created the Anaheim Mighty Ducks hockey team. So if you'd like to see people fight and you'll be happy. <laughs> <laughs> You're starting to see though, how it kind of is getting a little bit out there, right? You're starting to see how it's getting away from that nucleus. Yes, but still, still the, the fundamental thing. And now what the latest thing that they're, that they're doing is the cruise line. Oh yes. So yes. you have families go on a ship, kids go to one end of the boat, adults go to the other end of the boat and everybody's happy. All about making people happy. Now, I think if you had gone back to the, the, the founding date of, of Disney and you asked Walt, uh, you know, Disney's going to be running a cruise line in 80 years. I'm, I'm sure he would have sit, just sat there a minute and said, yeah, that's going to make people happy. Yeah, we, I can see that. But if yes. I had walked up to Walt Disney and said, look, Walt, I've got a steel mill that I want to sell you. And I guarantee you that it's going to make you 25 percent profits every year for the next 50 years you want to buy it from me nope he'd say no doesn't fit that's right and in fact as i looked at disney over time one at one point in time they were trying to get in the clothing business and they and they set up you know buying t-shirts with mickey mouse and stuff like that and trying to really elaborate the clothing business didn't really fit the purpose hmm. and they weren't successful in it and they got out of it so you make mistakes but having a clearly defined purpose can help you analyze when something isn't going right, why it's not going right, doesn't fit our purpose. Let's let's abandon it. Let's sell it. Let's get rid of it because it doesn't fit the purpose. Yeah, and that's a great point, too. I've seen individuals who are great entrepreneurs, but they start to invest in things that it doesn't seem like it fits them. Like uh, if someone were to offer me a McDonald's um, and say, you're going to make you know a million dollars a year. From McDonald's, you don't have to do anything. It doesn't fit with anything. I mean, I'm a storyteller. I have a publishing company. I love self-storage, all that. It doesn't fit because I'm against sort of like, you know, the, the 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 food that they produce. So it like doesn't fit well with my gut. And so I would say no, but I've seen other entrepreneurs that say, hey, if it makes money, I'm in. Right. That's right. That's and a big way, mistake. Yeah, we saw that. We saw that in the comparison companies. Some of the CEOs that we that we looked at. They were quoted as saying, I don't care what we're doing as long as we can make money on it. So that for them, the driving force was making money and that that's part of the way. And they left. But the company had that in their culture. That's what we're all about is making money. And that that just it doesn't endure uh, the way some significant contribution endures in people's minds. Plus, it also serves a lot of other purpose, you know, a lot of other uh, roles. People are people are more excited about being part of your company. People are willing to go the extra mile if they think that what they're doing really serves something that they think is important and the company's trying to, to accomplish in the, in the same way. So you get all sorts of different performance if, if you have people in your company that understand the purpose and they buy into it, which, by the way, you should use as a screen. Someone doesn't buy into the purpose, don't hire them. Right. So you want to get as many people as possible buying into that purpose and, and really living the core values and if you got that going uh, then you can create an organization in which you get a lot more commitment a lot more contribution a lot more innovation because people are looking for better ways to contribute to that purpose and if you create an organization that supports that you get a lot better performance 
out of it. So it's, it seemed, it can seem trivial and trite. And in economists, you know, I talk to my economist colleagues here at the business school, and I would say, what's the purpose of a business? They say to maximize shareholder wealth. And I'd say, well, our study doesn't show that. <laughs> doesn't agree with you. <laughs> and they say, oh, well, it's all, it's all bullshit. Then. <laughs> Excuse my language. <laughs> I like it. Did you notice any other trends amongst the leaders uh, that they had a certain discipline or a certain schedule or a habit or routine or a love of personal development Um, of the individuals I've worked with? They are just they they believe in the same thing that I do, that entrepreneurship or business is just a reflection of self-development. And if you can continue to grow as a person, you can become a better leader, a better person that attracts individuals and you make better decisions that way. So have you noticed anything amongst uh, um, the elite, if you will? Yeah, I I think, you know, I'm sort of conceptualizing or saying it in different words from what you said, but I think that there's a parallel to what you said. Probably probably the, the very first and sort of most astounding thing that we found was that the leaders and founders, founders slash development, leaders that really transformed the company, transformation leaders, that those folks had a very different focus from the people who started the comparison companies. And that focus was that they wanted to build a great company. Whereas the comparison company leaders wanted to lead a great company. (laughs) Okay. So, yeah. so, so the the visionary company leaders, many of them didn't have the technical expertise. You know, the, the, one of the founders of General Electric was a shoe salesman. You know, shoe salesman founding a a a, a, a company that's that's innovating in electric motors and electricity and light bulbs and things like that. And he's a shoe salesman. You know, didn't have any technical expertise, but he did have a sense of I want to build a great company. So what did he do is he he created the very first industrial research laboratory. It was a structure in the company that would last way beyond him, that would do all the things that needed to get done that he couldn't do himself. Hmm. So when you compare him to George Westinghouse, who founded Westinghouse and was the key competitor, in fact, Westinghouse was the industry leader all the time that George Westinghouse was leading the company. And he was a great inventor. He was a fantastic engineer. People thought he was sort of off the charts. In, in his technical brilliance. And he founded the company based on his technical brilliance. And it was great while well, he was there. But once he left, it wasn't as great. So, so one of the characteristics of these of the leaders of these companies is that they focus on building the company. They see themselves as, if you will, organizational architects. That they don't want to build a company that's dependent on them. They want to build a company that has the resources in it to do all of the things necessary to be great, to be highly successful. And one interesting thing is that is that we found that they didn't need to have a special leadership style. You know, they didn't need to be supportive leaders or charismatic leaders or whatever, uh, you know, whatever labels we've come up with recently about the types of leaders that are out there. There was no leadership style, if you will, that was the most effective. What was the most effective is focusing on building the company. And you could build in a variety of ways. You know, you could do it more autocratically. You could do it more democratically. You could do it more participative. I mean, there are all these ways you might build a company, but you built the company. So I'm less enamored with, with the ideas of, of, of leadership styles and that one's the best. I think it's the best in certain circumstances, but it might not be the best in other circumstances. 
And so I, I, I wouldn't focus in picking a leader. I wouldn't focus as much on their leadership style as I would focus on, on really, are you oriented to building the company and you believe in the, in the purpose of the company and you really have the core values of the company. That's what I would use as the main criteria. And if you're promoting someone from within, those, those the, the purpose and the core values are more likely to be there. If you're getting somebody from the outside, which you know I tend not to recommend, uh, you can ask that. You can find ask not only ask it, test it, make sure that their behavior is consistent with their words. When you said they, you have to find someone who wants to build a great company. Makes me think of I did a little research on Ray Kroc. Ray Kroc promoted to CEO, CEO, I believe one of his first line cooks in one of his first McDonald's. And he's the one that really grew it in the eighties and nineties. And it was because he felt like it was part of his from the very beginning. And there was that want to build rather than just to want to lead a great company, man, great way to put it with words. So it's almost like you, if as an entrepreneur, anybody listening to this, you need to find somebody to hand that battalion off to that does take ownership from the get-go. And and I'm assuming that's pretty difficult unless you build an incredible culture that uh, that that gets that want and drive built into their gut from the very beginning, right? Yep. Bring them in. Bring them into the company. Have them work there. Don't you know? Don't automatically want to go outside. Try to find people inside. So you got you've got to you've got to do things like. Uh, put together programs or, or ways of, of developing people inside. You've got to think about, about how people are moving up the organization and who's moving up the organization, what you're re- rewarding them for. And yeah, performance is one, but also consistently with the core values and the purpose of the company is another. So you can have two people, one's, you know, they're both great performers, but this performer really believes in the core values and the purpose. And this one, you know, he's kind of just going along with it. Choose this one. Choose the one that really is consistent with that. So it, it's not going to happen by happenstance. You have to have an organization. You have to build an organization that develops the people inside so that they can take over and lead it. You seem like a guy that's well-read and you, uh, you're you a great communicator. So I'm assuming there was a book or something that happened that put you on this path. Was there a book that stands out in your life that really made you this curious individual that we see today? Wow, that's a good question. Because um, the reason why I bring that up is because without Rich Dad Poor Dad entering my life when I was 23, I wouldn't be here. It put me on a whole new path. And uh, that's why one book can change change your life. And I'm, I'm assuming everybody can kind of trace it back to maybe a book they read or a story they heard or a person they saw. So I don't know if there's anything like that. that should, yeah, uh, for, me, for me, when I was a doctoral student, I, let me get back up. I started life out as an, an electrical engineer. That's my that's my training. And I I went into an MBA program. And uh, all of a sudden, I discovered human behavior because I had to take a core course in organizational behavior. I discovered human behavior. I thought, wow, this is really interesting. <laughs> you know, it's not all logical. <laughs> People don't always do what the, what the quote they, they should be doing because it's logical that they do that. So so I really got enamored with that. And that turned me on to to getting a PhD uh, in 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 its organization's area, and I and I turned out that I was very interested in in change, uh, and very interested in uh, how to change organizations to make them really more effective. Uh, 
and more effective, not only from the point of view of their performance, but also from the point of view of how they develop people inside of them. Did they help people to, in an extreme, self-actualize? So, so Maslow and as Maslow's hierarchy of needs, uh, which a lot of people have debunked from an academic perspective, still made a lot of sense to me. In those I agree. Oh, one hundred percent. And uh, and and so the the mechanisms for for doing change that I started latching onto very early on were were human oriented, using using teams to really build build a, a great and more successful organizations. So, so the idea of teams and, and helping people become more effective with each other as they work together and problem solve, helping them become more collaborative, uh, helping them to, uh, to really develop their abilities as much as they could, all of those things kind of were the, the mechanism for change that I liked the most. And so that led me to UCLA, where there, there was a guy named Bob Tannenbaum there who, uh, who really to me, epitomized the sort of of teacher and and the sort of contributor that I wanted to be, uh, because he really he really understood human behavior. He was really able to help people explore their own human behavior and and be motivated, get motivated to to experiment with behaving in different ways to make them more effective with others. So the, the use of the idea of of the human of the individual in the company and and getting them to behave in more effective ways that was the main driver of of change uh, in the way that that the folks at UCLA were looking at. And, and I like that. So it wasn't just you go in and you create a new structure or you bring in a new technology or you create a new strategy. Uh, all of those things are important, but in the end, all of, the, all of that becomes reality with people behaving, right? You have new technology, people have to use it. They have to apply it. It's people that are doing at the core of everything, you know, you're running a machine, they run the machine. You're, you're doing coding on a computer that, you know, well, that's kind of getting with AI. That's kind of getting a little iffy. Now. Oh yeah. But, but you got people kind of at the root of all of this. And so, and so if, if people aren't being effective, if people aren't being inspired, motivated, you're not going to have a great organization. Hmm. And so all of that started me uh, uh, on the path toward trying to improve organizations uh, but mainly through the the the, per, the people side of the equation, and and then that evolved into what we did for Built to Last, and you know finding that that these companies are built in such a way that people can really perform well in them, and they're not just being led by a charismatic leader telling people what to do, and because he knows what to do and is great at it, they do the right things, and then you know the company's successful, so everybody thinks great. Then the guy has a heart attack. <laughs> and then what do you do? Yeah, then who takes over? I think that's why I have such an affinity for entrepreneurship. Uh, you're talking about the journey to self-actualization. Yep. And uh, that's the way I look at business. It, it, it allowed that for me. And I always think of Jim Rohn's quote. It's like, you want to go and make a million dollars, not for the million dollars, but for the journey of who you have to become to attract a million dollars. That's where the reward is at. And that's where self-actualization remains. Oh. And if I could take that a bit further, is it is it in, in self-actualizing yourself that you try to create environments in which other people have a chance to become more self-actualized? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's the hero's journey, I always think, because the moment you leave your ordinary world into the uh, into the unfamiliar, and then you conquer and obtain your reward and then go back and help others do the same 
that completes the cycle. And that in, and if you can help others do it, that's where you add value to the world. And that's how you're going to be remembered. Oh, Jerry, um, I really appreciate your time. It is really an honor to, to talk with you seriously. Um, you know, this book was uh, meaningful to me when I first read it. So uh, thank you so much for, for being here. Well, thanks for having me. I enjoyed the conversation with you. Absolutely. Guys, remember, a million-dollar book will lead to a million-dollar life. Right on.